to see staying up late on things like this. This is what I'm convinced. We need a, a version of the word hungover mm-hmm. that means I wasn't drunk, but I am turnt from the festivities last night. Like just messed up in the morning. Oh, so you just put like a clarifying word, like Disneyland hangover. Ooh, well, like a or but it, Fourth of July hangover. Fourth of July hangover. Holly. That implies a lot of Coors Light, right. Pabst Blue, it's true. Ribbon and uh, Budweiser America beer. I did not have Budweiser. one alcoholic beverage on the fourth. Hmm. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to The Debrief, a weekly Q&A podcast from your friends here at Sandals Church. I'm Justin Pardee. Baby, I'm a firework today. Oh, my gosh. I'm Stephanie Keen, and I don't have my Katy Perry references as ready. Good. I was glad you were going with Katy Perry, not Fourth of July. And we have Pastor Batman, the outdoor life king. Yeah, I saw him today at the gym. So, guy in our church is on the cover of Outdoor Magazine because he's a stud. Talk to him though. He just spent three weeks in the wilderness alone again and survived. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he's incredible. So, this is PMB. Glad to be here. Uh, We are glad to have you here as well, man. It was a uh, happy 4th of July for us yesterday. And as we get in the show, we got to give a quick birthday shout out to producer Kelly. Happy birthday, Kelly. Happy birthday. Who is with child? Yeah. His wife. Yes. Child. They're gonna have baby any day now, dude. Yes. So it's gonna be great. Yeah. If the uh if the Maybe audio quality, today. if the audio quality of the debrief gets bad for a while, people now you understand. Yeah. Got a nine one one call. <laughs> Come quickly. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Well, hey, before we jump into this, we got a great show today. We're gonna talk about Acts chapter two. We're gonna talk about Acts chapter three. Whoa, double. And up. Uh, we yeah. also have some good follow-up questions. All of this because last week you were traveling, so we dropped cold gold volume one on you guys. Uh, hopefully you had fun with that. We appreciate some of those encouraging notes on Facebook that said yes. So uh, we'll probably be marching toward Cold Gold Volume 2 at some point in the future. If you guys are lucky, maybe at the end of this summer. But before we get into all that Q&A, we got to say thank you for continuing to bring in those wonderful five-star reviews in the iTunes podcast directory. Today, we got two awesome reviews. Uh, this one comes from Simply Alicia. She says, my husband and I both listen to the debrief on our own, but we find ourselves discussing the message and the debrief all throughout the week. We so appreciate you guys. Aww, That's incredible, guys. man. I just want to encourage that, man. If you're married, man, talk about Jesus, man. That, there's nothing that will bring you closer together than conversation about God's spirit because God wants you closer. That's awesome. Seriously, maybe uh, for this episode, guys, why don't, if you're listening to it separately, uh, Simply Alicia and your husband, why don't you hit pause right now? Why don't you uh, wait till you get home later this evening, pour a glass of wine, maybe get some fruit, go out to the backyard together, sit in the patio, sit on the couch, wherever you got to do it, and just listen to this episode together. Yeah, we've been told we're a great addition to date night. So, uh, yes, that's right. Last week. The debrief, bringing people closer. Oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, and this question is from Stoop Lover, which is a name that I don't understand, but I love it. A uh, great way to fill my time other than watch dumb late night TV. Amen. I hate TV. Um, mm. But late night shows are, there's some good stuff I, I, on there. I right am now. not a TV fan. Mm. I'd rather be reading about the Bible so I can tell you about it. And then you can tell me about all your awesome TV shows. (laughs) See, we're a great team. You know what? We all do our parts, man. Equal roles in the body of Christ. Awesome. Well, hey, we got to jump right in with some follow-up questions before we get into the book of Acts. This first one, I think, comes from uh, Stephanie's mom. Hi, Ellen. It does. I know. This is great. I like that my mom gets her own special access to the debrief here. Um, We were talking the other day about, in the first chapter of Acts, it talks about how Jesus was back on earth for 40 days. And she and I started talking through all the different references to 40 in the Bible. Why was Jesus back for 40 days? Yeah, we don't know specifically, but it is a spiritual number. You know, um, oftentimes, so Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Moses, um, you know, goes 40 days to get the law, spends 40 years in, um, uh, what do you call it? In the desert with the people of Israel. Elijah has a 40 day spiritual trek. So there's something Noah significant. Has- 
rain for 40 days and nights. Yes, there you uh, go. Thank one. you for adding that. I saw the movie Noah. So. Yeah, biblical mm-hmm. knowledge there. So, you know, I don't know. God likes the number 40. So, but but what's most important is that there's 50 days between Passover and Pentecost. And so, um, and that's where the word comes from, Pentecost, meaning 50 uh, or five, excuse me, Penta. Um, and so- Is that G- a Greek word for- a Greek, Greek yeah, number? yeah. Penta? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Penta. Oh, Pentateuch? So, yeah, Pentagon. Pentagon, first five bucks. Yeah, Pentagon, Pentagram. five. Yeah, there you go. Pen- Boom. Oh, Pentagram. I went Pentagon thinking American safety. After oh, the I, first went, I went weird. You went with the devil. Spiritual Good stuff. Yeah. Let's, yeah, let's pray for her. We will. Um, <laughs> even Touchdown Jesus is concerned for Stephanie <laughs> right now. So so it, it's interesting that, you know, Pentecost um, is, is is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And you see, so he's telling them to wait for this religious event that's just amazing. So. Okay, so here's our next question from follow-up question comes from Matt, not you, unless you're surreptitiously Sending Maybe it surreptitiously, sending, sending in uh, questions. To wow, say, eighth, grade, eighth grade word, that was good. <laughs> yeah, I was trying, trying <laughs> there. Okay, this one is from Matt. In uh, Luke 23, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this is why he's on the cross. Now, it sounds like Jesus is saying it'd be appropriate for God to forgive these people because they were acting in ignorance. But other parts of Scripture teach that we're responsible even for the sins we do commit in ignorance. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, I think there's a couple of things. So, so one is we have to look at the event and then we have to apply the theological truth to life. And so th- there's the two challenges there. So let's look at the event first. The event specifically, I think Jesus is, is granting and announcing that these people can be forgiven for this probably most horrific sin that's ever been committed. I mean, can you think of a sin worse than killing God's son? I can't imagine that. And so he's saying there still is an opportunity for these people to be forgiven. And we'll talk about this today when we look at Acts 3, because Peter actually speaks to those people and says, you can be forgiven because what you did was in ignorance. And so Jesus announced, which by the way, um, that conversation with of Jesus is not found in Mark. It's not found in Matthew or John. It's, It's only in Luke where we see that Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Peter touches on this in his sermon to the people in Acts 3 later on. So they can be forgiven um, if they repent, if they place their faith in, and trust in Jesus Christ. So at that point, right, they've rejected Jesus. Not only have they rejected Jesus, but they're crucifying him. Mm-hmm. So they're going one step further. They're not just saying, I don't believe in you. They're saying, I'm gonna kill you, right. which is, is, is a much more serious sin than simply just this rejection of his Messiahship. They're saying, not only are you not God's chosen one, we're gonna kill you because you're a blasphemer. I mean, I mean, they accuse him of almost demonic possession mm-hmm. um, and, and the rejection of who God is, even though he's the fulfillment of who God is. And so then I think we need to look at ourselves. Yeah, we, we do things in ignorance. And I, I think for us as Christians, this really for us is a model of how we can forgive people. Because a lot of times it's really, really difficult for us to forgive people who have wounded us. I mean, certainly we're not being crucified by people, but maybe it feels like it emotionally, relationally, uh, even spiritually. Mm-hmm. And what we need to do is look, they don't fully understand the scope of, of what they're doing. And so because they're ignorant, I can grant grace and forgiveness and pray for these people because if they truly knew how they were hurting me and what they were doing, they, they, they might not be doing it. I mean, sometimes people are just evil and they know what they're doing and uh, they do it. So, um, so you know, are people responsible for their sins done in ignorance? Absolutely. This is not a get out of jail free card. We are responsible for our sins, whether we know what we're doing or not doing. Jesus is simply saying, there's still an opportunity for these people to be saved. So um, the reality is, you know, sin's a serious thing, whether we're conscious of it or not. Got it. Well, we have a uh, bunch more questions coming in from Acts chapter two and three, but we love doing these follow-up questions. Yeah. So if you want to send in questions uh, from anything you've been reading in Acts or anything that you maybe have just started listening to the debrief and have from Luke, we would love to get those in. You can send those in. Just go to sandalschurch.com slash the debrief and you can submit questions right there. 
Awesome. All right, let's jump into Acts chapter 2. It opens up with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, In verse 1, it basically starts off with this moment. When the day of the Pentecost arrived, which you talked about a little bit, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were all sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. As they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we got rushing wind, tongues of fire. This is a pretty intense experience. How come we don't necessarily experience something like this today when we receive the Holy Spirit as Christians? Well, so what we need to understand is um, this is a one-time event. This is the coming of the church. I mean, the coming of the spirit, this is the birth of the church. And okay. so this is a one-time unique event in the history of the church that is not duplicated. Now, there are some churches that say, you know, there's a second Pentecost or there's this or that. It's just not theologically true. The Holy Spirit came once in this way, in a powerful way, and it's a one-time event. And it's not something that happens over and over again. This is a unique event. It's a powerful event. Uh, it's the beginning of the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses uh, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so this is what we see that is happening. It's a powerful event. It's an amazing event. Um, it was it was scary. There mm-hmm. was some kind of, of wind that rushed upon them. Um, they're not literal tongues. They weren't actual tongues of fire, right? I mean, um, it says like tons of fire is actually how you would translate it. And so he's trying to describe a spiritual reality in a, in, in a physical reality. And it's difficult. And so mm-hmm. whenever we see this in the, the book of Revelation, when we see, you know, anytime we see somebody trying to describe heaven in terms that we understand it, it's very, very difficult because their categories are limited based upon our experience. And so- you know, they were like tongues of fire. I mean, these were these were these were something that that came upon them and and it touched them in a powerful way and it caused them to speak in this amazing utterance that they had never done before. So it was an incredible event. Mm-hmm. Um, and Amy has a follow up question on that too. About she asks, are the tongues of fire the same tongues that Paul references throughout First Corinthians fourteen? And if so, why is that gift so controversial? And why doesn't our church encourage people to pray for that? Yeah. So. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul talks about that there are various types of tongues and various types of, of languages. And so um, I don't think that, you know, what he's specifically talking about is what's happening here. Like I said, this was a, a you know, a one-time powerful event. There seems to be something, some gift, some manifestation of the spirit of the gift of tongues that is happening um, in the in the in the book of Corinth, in the church in Corinthians that is separate from this. This event is interesting because it comes on them and they speak in this language. So we need to not say tongues. The word tongue in Greek, um, glossalia, literally means it means language. That's what it means. And so I I don't know why in the history of translation that they chose to translate it tongue, but whenever you see tongue in the Bible, it doesn't mean like your tongue. It means mm-hmm. the language that you speak. And so they spoke in languages. And what's interesting is there's all these people there and the languages that they're speaking were actual languages that they understood. What they say is, hey, I'm not from here. You know, I'm from um, Persia. I'm from, you know, way up in uh, Rome or I'm from Galatia or I'm from down in Africa. And there's no way that you would know my native tongue, but you are speaking in my native tongue. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is, right, the gospel is going to go forth into all these nations and it's going to be declared in a powerful way. And so these people have this supernatural gift of not a spiritual tongue, but of, or a spiritual language, but of actual language. They're speaking mm-hmm. in such a way that all these people understand them. And I don't believe that the gift is the gift of understanding by the non-believers. I believe that it's the gift of speaking by the followers of Christ who have now received the Holy Spirit that's going to empower them to take this gospel 
to the nations. So the question of, you know, why don't we encourage it? Like, you know, like in 1 Corinthians 14, because the reality is the reason we have 1 Corinthians 13 and 14 is because the issue of tongues is controversial. It was it was a problem back then. That's why the apostle Paul talks about it in the way that he does. He says, I wish that you would rather speak five words of intelligible words, words that people can understand than 10,000 words in a tongue. Mm-hmm. It becomes a problem. Um, it becomes difficult to manage. It's, it's a gift that's easily uh, faked. Right? How do you know when somebody's really doing it or not doing it? And the truth is, you know, it, it's just something that's very, very difficult. And so at our church, there are people in our church who speak in tongues in their private prayer language, in their own lives, and that's great. But in our church, we want to speak in words that people understand. We don't want to confuse. You know, we, we, we want to we want to speak in such a way that they understand it and it's clear. Um, and we live in a world where where I can speak a language and everybody understands that. And so yeah. that's why we tend not to use that in our church. And it's not that we we don't believe in it or we don't see it. We have people in our church that that do that and that's great. It's not a gift that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a gift that I've prayed for, I've asked for. The Holy Spirit, right, determines what gifts we get. I didn't give it. And and so, you know, um, but I have good friends that that use it and and I trust them and believe in them and I think they're credible. And I, and I think it's a beautiful thing for some people, but the Holy Spirit ultimately determines what gifts we get. So, um, you know, I, I'm there to teach, you know, in our church in a way that people understand. And that's the primary goal, which actually, if you look at Acts chapter two, what is the Holy Spirit trying to do? Not trying to speak in a fantastic language. It's trying to communicate in a way that they understand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I believe the Holy Spirit wants me to do is communicate in a way that people understand. So Totally. Okay, so Michelle writes in and she says, I grew up in a Pentecostal church where they taught that you were not filled with the Holy Spirit unless you spoke in tongues. I now understand that tongues are a gift and not everyone has that gift, but where does the belief that you must speak in tongues come from? Yeah, well, it comes from Pentecostals. It doesn't come from the Bible. And so I love my Pentecostal brethren. They're good people. They want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Pentecostal is a label of a type of It's a self-describing label that really emphasizes. So we're talking about Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so I've seen like church signs that say like Church of the... Pentecost. Yeah, yeah. So they they define themselves based on this moment. And so what that means is they're really about this fantastic occurrence in the church where the speaking in tongues really is the center of worship for their church. For us in our church, the preaching of the word is the center of our church. And we do so right in an intelligible language, a language that people understand so that we can proclaim and lead people to Jesus. That's that's our church's mission. We're, we're not against these things, but the primary purpose of Pentecost is to evangelize and to save souls and to proclaim. So what happens, and, and you know, I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but after this happens, what does Peter do? He doesn't preach in tongues. He preaches in the language, you know, in the common tongue that they understand, probably Greek, you know, maybe, maybe Hebrew. We don't know exactly what language he, mm-hmm. he spoke in to preach, but he then spoke in a language that they all understood. And that's what we do in the church. And so you know, it's sad that we, we we fight about this issue and we divide over this issue. Um, the Holy Spirit wants to unify us, unify us, not divide us, and wants to bring us together, not separate us. And that's what's so sad about so many of the Christian denominations is that we fight over yeah. uh, something that was meant to bring us together and we've made it a thing that brings us apart. And so, um, again, I love my Pentecostal brothers and sisters. Man, I think they're great. Uh, we have you know, Pentecostals come and speak at our church. Uh, Pastor Wayne Cordero would describe himself as a Pentecostal. Lisa Bevere would describe herself as, as a Pentecostal. We've had them in our church. I think they're beautiful. They're they're amazing. You know, Sandals Church needs to be who God has called Sandals Church to be. Mm-hmm. And, um, and our vision is to be real with self, God, and others. That's our particular part within the body of Christ. That's our focus. That's our mission. 
Um, and, and I appreciate that. Um, there are churches that, that don't believe that the gift of tongues is still present, like John MacArthur um, in Southern California is probably mm-hmm. the most famous one. I, I don't agree with him. I still love him, appreciate him. I can learn from him. I've learned a lot from him. I have mm-hmm. his commentaries. I don't agree with him. He believes that the gift of tongues has ceased. I, I just don't see that. First uh, Corinthians 14 says, do not prohibit uh, the speaking in tongues. And our church doesn't prohibit it, but we also don't celebrate it. We don't glorify it. We glorify the preaching of his word. We glorify the gift of prophecy, which is the spoken word of God to convict sinners, to lead people to Christ. And that's what we do as a church. So we need to not get into this. Well, our church is about this, right? Look, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to, is to point people to Jesus. That, that, that's the bottom line. The Holy Spirit does not glorify himself. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He does not glorify himself. He glorifies Jesus and he points people to Jesus. And that's what we're trying to do as a church. And so, you know, Pentecostals, like I said, I love them. More and more of them are moving away, especially the larger churches. You know, I, I don't think Wayne Cordero would agree that you have to speak in tongues to be a born again Christian. I certainly don't think Lisa Bevere would agree with that. So, you know, even within the context of Pentecostals, there's not agreement in terms of what that means. The moment you repent of your sins, you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now that's gonna manifest itself in different gifts. And we'll get into that as we get into Romans, as we get into 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and we'll address that as it comes, but it doesn't manifest its presence in every person in the same way. That's why there's a body of Christ. And that's what's so sad about what I believe Pentecostals teach is they say everyone has to have this gift. And I think that's a tragedy. We don't need everyone at Sandals to be able to preach. We, we don't need that. We, we would have a very dysfunctional church if we had 6,000 Matt Browns. It would mm-hmm. be a real problem, <laughs> okay? You know, we don't need 6,000 Justin Parties. We don't need 6,000 Stephanie Keens. We need you guys to be who God has called you to be. And we need you to play the part in the body of Christ that he's called. And when we do that and we celebrate not the gifts we want, but the gifts that we have. And I would say that's the tragedy. You know, when I was in college and I first was getting really serious about God, you know, I wanted to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I didn't understand that when you become a Christian, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not saved, Hmm. period. Right, the Holy Spirit, Jesus promises when you repent and you believe in him, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's his promise. And so I went to this church um, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and it was hilarious. And so I went to this Pentecostal church. You know, I I think every believer should have this attitude. God, whatever whatever you wanna give me, I want. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's nothing that God wants to give me that I don't want. So Holy Spirit, give it to me. And so I went forward to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it was hilarious. You know, there's all these people that go forward. And if you've never been to one of these services, man, it's pretty exciting. It's a lot of fun. And they start praying over people and people start falling and, you know, speaking in tongues, and it's really, really wild. And so there's probably like 40 or 50 people that go forward to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then pretty soon I'm the last person. I'm the only person up there and I'm not dropping, I'm not receiving this gift. And they're praying over me and then they're chanting and more and more people are praying and I'm getting all hot and sweaty and everybody's praying over me. And I'm like, please God, please, for the love of God, you know, I, I want this gift. And um, it was just really, really awkward. This guy's praying over me, praying over me. And I don't know what he said, but what I heard was, Lord set his balls on fire. That's, that's what I heard. Oh and I'm thinking, I don't want holy jock itch. You know, this is not what I want. And so I freaked out, man. I, I mean, this literally happened, right? I freak out. And I, what I heard him say, and so I later talked to a charismatic friend of mine. And he said, what they probably said was, Lord set him on fire from the balls of his feet to the top of his head. But what I heard was, Holy Spirit set his balls on fire. And I'm like, 
I don't want that, man. And so I literally ran out of the church, man. And I never went back. And I was like, okay, that's not for me. And I really struggled with it and wrestled with it for a couple of years because I think Pentecostals, unhealthy Pentecostals make you feel guilty and they make you feel like, you know, you didn't get it. And, and I, I just have come to reject that. And, and, and as we go through the book of Acts, you're going to see that the Holy Spirit falls on people in different ways. It doesn't happen the same way every time. The Holy Spirit is not manifested in the same way every time. And you're just going to see that. It's just, it's just different every single time. And so uh, the bottom line is though, you want the Holy Spirit in your life. It doesn't need to make you freaky. It doesn't need to make you weird. The Holy Spirit is going to lead you to become the truest version of yourself. The Holy Spirit knows you better than you know yourself. The Holy Spirit knows God better than you will ever know God because the Holy Spirit is God. And so don't be afraid of the Holy Spirit. Don't feel like you have to get weird. Don't feel like you have to get bizarre. That's just, you know, you know, it, you know, you're never going to see us holding snakes and chanting at Sandals Church. Right. That's just not who we are. And, 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 you know, I mean, again, there are Christians out there, you know, probably born again, probably saved. They're a little weird. You know, it's just like your family. You got weird family members in your family. We have weird Christians in our family. And so. Do we have something in common? Cause I went in the, the 10th grade of high school to try and get the baptism of the Holy Spirit went forward and did not get the yeah, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not guess, yeah, you, right? yeah. <laughs> and then they switched the pastor guy. I felt really awkward about this, but he, at the, in front of this massive room, he started trying to cast a demon out of me. Yeah. Well, because, that probably was real. Yeah, yeah. He was probably trying to help I, you out. I was very awkward, but uh, it seemed to not work because then just two older gentlemen came in, escorted me out the side of the room and then offered to buy me Burger King from right next door to the church. It was That explains a lot. Yeah. It was, that, uh, well, that was, that was your <laughs> demon it was your this insatiable <laughs> yeah. appetite for burger king yeah exactly yeah so let me you know so just yeah, let me just say again you know it, it, the holy spirit's a beautiful thing it's a powerful thing and you should never be made to feel guilty as a believer and here's the thing that's unhealthy mm. is they're going to tell you that you're missing out on something look pursue jesus christ repent of your sins place your faith in christ that's all you need to do and just say as, as a believer right i would say this for all, for every christian this is healthy Holy Spirit, I want you to take over my life as much as you want. This, this is the Christian life, me dying to self, living for Christ and saying, Spirit, fill me, guide me, teach me, you know, use me. Whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life, you let the Holy Spirit do it. Don't let another believer guilt trip you, uh, tell you that you, somehow you're second-class citizen or you've missed out. If you have if you've repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're not missing out on, on anything. Now, certainly... Can you have encounters with the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's going to be sermons where I'm preaching where you're like, meh. There's going to be worship services. I don't know why Stephanie just laughed. On <laughs> so maybe that. she needs a little spirit. I never feel that way. That's why I laughed. Yeah, I'm like, sure. how is that possible? Yeah, totally. You're lying now. Okay. <laughs> you know, there's going to be sermons where we feel, we don't get a lot out, but there's going to be sermons, man, where you feel God's presence thick and powerful and it's a life-changing encounter. And certainly those things can happen over and over and over again um, as Christians. You know, our relationships with God, if you're married, it's just like your relationship in marriage. There's going to be times where you just feel so in sync and so connected. And there's going to be times where you're just working out the reality of marriage together. The same thing happens with God, right? We're not always on the mountaintop with God. Sometimes we got to go through the valley. Sometimes we got to just go through the mundane. And then we got to have these experiences. And that's where Pentecostals get nutty is they always want to be on the mountain. And then it just gets bizarre and it gets weird. And it's, you know, I got to outdo your experience and my experience. And then, well, this happened and that happened. And then it turns into this pride, you know, issue. Mm -hmm. And it, it's just really, really sad. And so, um, yeah. Awesome. Well, I think this is going to be a long- and, and let me say this. No one taught these guys how to speak in tongues. 
Mm. So that's one of the things okay. that happens in Pentecostal churches. They try these guys, right? There wasn't a class. It just happened. Mm. So it, it's a spiritual gift. That, that's what I would say. Let, let the Holy Spirit gift you. That doesn't mean that people can't come alongside and help you in your gift, mm-hmm. but we don't teach people how to have spiritual gifts. We can help steward the spiritual gifts that people have. Hmm. Boom, a lot of good stuff in there. So let's keep moving forward in Acts chapter two. Peter now is given this pretty fantastic sermon. And uh, in verses 17 through 21, he actually quotes uh, a whole bunch directly from Joel chapter two. And Art writes in and he said, Mom, we hear very little of the prophet Joel. And I think both in maybe sermons and also quoted in the New Testament, he asks, how do we know we should believe in his writing and that he's authentic? Right. Well, the first reason that you don't hear a lot from Joel is he's considered, he's not considered, he's called a minor prophet. And it doesn't mean minor is in less important. It means he wrote less material. Okay. So your major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, you know, those guys, you know, Daniel, they, they wrote a lot of content. And so they're called the major prophets. And so just simply by based on having content, you know, Isaiah writes, all, you know, over 60, you know, something uh, chapters, can't remember the specific amount, I think it's 66 or 68 chapters mm-hmm. um, in, in his in his um, work, right? He has all that content. So there's more there to be quoted from. So Joel is powerful in content and, and and we need to listen to what he's saying, but you have to think this. So much of what Joel said had to do with the coming Holy Spirit. So it makes sense that we wouldn't hear about him until the arrival of the Holy Spirit. So Peter is appropriately quoting much of what Joel is talking about. Oh, okay. And so I, that's why I think it's important is, right? Joel prophesied and said, there's gonna come a time when, you know, men will see visions and women will speak, you know, these things and these truths and and young people are gonna be, it, it's gonna be incredible. And so Peter's saying, hey guys, what Joel said is it's happening right now. Wow. This is what's happening. So the other thing I'd say, how can we trust Joel? Because Joel is not, he's not a controversial book. I mean, he's always in every single gathering of Hebrew scriptures. He's never controversial. He's included in all those things. As far as I know, he was never disputed for Christians. He's always included. So you have 2000 years of Christian history and a couple thousand years of Jewish history where everybody says, Joel's in, listen Mm -hmm. to Joel. And so that's what I would say is, listen to Joel. Peter thought what Joel had to say was true. So, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you have the leader of the church saying, listen to what Joel said. Joel spoke through the power of God. And so that's how I would say is, that's, that's why we listen to what he says because he's affirmed here. And so Peter is now the leader of the church. Christ is gone. He's gone to heaven. So who do we listen to? We listen to Peter and Peter's preaching and he quotes Joel. So that's what I would say. Art, was it? Yeah. So yeah, if it's good enough for Peter, Art, it needs to be good enough for you. (laughs) Good one. All right. At the end of that quote from Joel, um, he says, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I've heard it, you know, I think you've said this before, like even demons know that Jesus is Lord, would call him Lord. So how do we go about calling on the name of the Lord in the way that will actually mean we're saved? Yeah, so the way that we call upon the Lord is we call out in repentance. I said in church this last weekend that the only thing separating you from a personal relationship with God is a sincere apology. You know, the demons refuse to apologize. They refuse to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They know who he is, but they don't follow him. Mm -hmm. And so simply understanding, yeah, I cognitively get that Jesus is God doesn't mean that you're saved. Have you repented of your sins? That's what it means to be, to call upon the name of the Lord. So the specific quote is call upon the the Lord and you shall be saved. Is that what it says? Uh, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will be saved. So the promise is that you're calling out to be saved. Well, why are you asking to be saved? Because you're admitting you're lost. You're admitting you're dying. You're admitting you're sinning. So that's what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. God, I'm lost. God, I'm a sinner. God, I need to be saved. And so you call out on Jesus Christ to save you and he will. He promises 
to save you. Whoever calls upon his name. We see this in Romans. We see this throughout the New Testament. The only thing keeping you from being saved is repenting of your sins and placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so we see that even, you know, um, in the Old Testament where it says the righteous shall live by faith. We, 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 we trust in God. We believe in God. And that's what it means. And so that's how we do that. We believe in God by repenting of our sins and trusting in him. We say no to ourselves and we say yes to God. So that, that's what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. And so that's important because not everyone who calls himself a Christian is a Christian. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, they're just not, you know? For many people, they're a Christian because they weren't raised Muslim or they weren't raised atheist or they weren't raised something else. Mm-hmm. They have no idea. You know, it's like 4th of July. I was watching this show where they're trying to interview people, asking them about, you know, what year did America become a nation? They have no idea. <laughs> Who was the first president? They have no idea. They have no idea what it means to be an American. Mm-hmm. Now they are an American because of their birth. The way that we're Christians is because of our, our birth, our new birth in Christ. But these people that know nothing about Christ, really you called upon him, you, you have no idea who he is. You have no idea what he did, what he said. They're probably not a Christian. Hmm. I love one of your lines uh, from this last weekend. You said, the only thing between some of you and a right relationship with God is a heartfelt apology. Hmm. I thought that was really good. Uh, so up next in verse 22, Peter goes on and says, people of Israel, listen, God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing pow- powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. This sounds like Peter's saying God just endorsed Jesus, not that Jesus was God. Is that what he's saying here? No, no, yeah. So, well, think of think of endorsement in terms of um, you know the political spectrum that we're going through right now. When somebody endorses someone, they're saying this person. I believe this person should be. Mm-hmm. I believe this person is qualified. I believe this person can do this. And so, what he's saying here is, look, God has endorsed Jesus as the Messiah. He is the chosen one. Well, how how did God demonstrate his endorsement? through the powerful, amazing miracles that he did. I mean, nobody has ever done what Jesus did repeatedly over and over. And even if maybe Moses did some miracles or Elijah did some miracles, nobody came back from the dead. That didn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, that that has not happened. Jesus Christ said, you're gonna kill me. But three days later, I'm gonna rise from the dead. So the miracles of Jesus are signs of God's endorsement, of God's selection that yes, this is the chosen one. And so that's how we know that Jesus is God's chosen one, that Jesus is the son of God is because of the manifestation of God's power in and through him. That's how God endorsed him. Um, and so it doesn't mean that he's not God. It just means what he's saying here is that he was He was the Messiah. And so that's what he, right? he's preaching to a Jewish audience. What he's trying to say is he's not trying to tell them everything about who Jesus is. He's trying to get them to the point where they realize he was the Messiah and you missed it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the sermon continues on, and verse 24, uh, Peter says, But God released him, this is Jesus, from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. So we hear variations of that last line a lot in sermons or Christian books, uh, and a lot from like worship leaders and songs that we sing. What does it mean that death couldn't keep its grip on Jesus? Yeah, it means that Jesus Christ is more powerful than than, than death itself. And so you know, in Acts chapter three, which we're going to get to in a minute, it says that you killed the author of life. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the very essence of life. All life is in him. All life is created through him and all life is sustained by him. Colossians chapter one. So, you know, Jesus Christ, think think about death in terms of the most powerful human experience. Like birth is amazing. Mm. It's incredible. But death is, is even more incredible because it's final. Mm. Once someone's dead, there's nothing that you can do about that. Hmm. So it is the most, it is the greatest challenge we face as human beings. Death. Right. 
Yeah. And so Christ defeated death. It, the most powerful experience we face as human beings can't control Jesus. He is greater than even death itself. And that, that's what he's saying here. And, and what he says is, as you well know. So all these people that are there in Jerusalem have heard about this guy who was dead and rose. Right. So they're aware of this fact, and yet they still haven't repented of their sins. That's what's amazing. And that's why his sermon is such a punch in the gut. He's like, you guys know this. Mm-hmm. You know Jesus Christ was publicly crucified. You know that he publicly appeared after being placed in a tomb for three days. Death couldn't hold him. So I think it's like this. Death couldn't hold him. What's holding you back from placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? I mean, even death has to acknowledge who Jesus is. Hmm. How is it that you're so dead in your sins that you can't? I mean, that's what's amazing, right? Death has to acknowledge Jesus is God. What's keeping you from doing that? It's just a powerful, powerful reminder of how incredible Jesus is. Uh, And I don't know if you guys have ever been around a dead person, but the finality of it is so incredible. It's awful, but it's powerful. Mm Mm-hmm. Death is final, right? It's over. There's nothing we can do. Not for Jesus. Mm-hmm. He came back. And he wasn't dead for five minutes. He wasn't dead for an hour, right? Three days, he rotted in a tomb. Three days. Think about that. Yeah. And he came back. Mm-hmm. So. so Peter challenges everybody here in verse 38, and he says, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the church that I grew up in used this specific verse to teach that you can't be forgiven of your sins unless you are baptized. And that's different than how you teach about baptism here at Sandals Church. So is Peter saying that repentance plus baptism equals forgiveness and both are required? Right. So before I answer that question, I want you to read the verse again. Okay. Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Right. So so there's a bunch of problems here with this verse in terms of building a theology solely based upon this verse. Okay. So the Gospel of Matthew tells us, Jesus said, how should we be baptized? It's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Do you know what? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right. So Jesus says we should be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does the verse say? Be baptized in the name of Jesus In the name Christ. of Jesus. So what I would say here is what I think Peter is doing is he's giving a summary of the process. Got he's it. not telling us everything about the mm-hmm. process, but he's giving a summary of it. So there are some churches that baptize in Jesus' name only because of that exact verse. Mm-hmm. They said, well, Peter said to baptize in the name of Jesus only. Well, what did Jesus say? Mm-hmm. Jesus said to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so I think it's important that when we think about you know, the context of repentance that we look at the scriptures in its entirety and not build a theology based upon one verse. The verse does seem to indicate, and, and the, 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 the challenge here is the Greek word ice, which is translated in English for, be baptized for the remission of your sins. Mm-hmm. Um, and that word ice, although it normally uses, you know, for, because of, unto, or into, it can also mean, you know, because of, and that's the minority position. And so even if I'm wrong in, in, in trying to translate that word because of, you know, the forgiveness of your sins, let's say it does in fact mean as it is normally translated for the, you know, for, you know, for the forgiveness of your sins, we know that the thief on the cross wasn't baptized, right? Mm-hmm. He died on the cross and he was completely forgiven. The overarching context of scripture, when we look at its entirety, nowhere do we see people being baptized um, to be saved. Right. If that were true, 
Christ did need to die. We are not saved because of something we do. We are saved because of what Jesus did. Now, having said that, I grew up a Baptist, right? So Baptists say baptism doesn't mean anything, but you better do it. Mm-hmm. And so that's what makes Baptists so weird. <laughs> it's is kind of ironic. Yeah, no, it's 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 a truly you know Baptists are truly a peculiar uh, breed of Christians, right? Baptism means absolutely nothing, but you better do it, and you have to be done. It has to be done by immersion. It's 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 bizarre. Yeah. So they don't think it means anything, but you have to do it, and it has to be done in a specific way. And we're naming ourselves after it. Yeah, yeah, and we name ourselves <laughs> Baptists. Kind of well, actually, our name comes from uh, anti-baptism. Oh. So, so, so the word Baptist. So, so I, you know, you, you know, I didn't know Sound Church was Baptist. Well, you don't have to be Baptist. Go to Sound Church. I'm Baptist. The, the word Baptist comes from the Catholics calling us anti-Baptists Got it. against baptism because they denied sprinkling children. Right. Mm-hmm. So that. So yeah. So our name actually comes from. Um, you know, it's not like a name we chose. Just like Christians didn't say we want to be called Christians at Antioch when we get there. It's it's actually a derogatory term. Mm-hmm. You little Christ, and it mm-hmm. stuck little Christ, you know? So Baptists are called Baptists because they were against baptism, because they denied infant baptism because they believed that baptism follows repentance. So you gotta repent and then be baptized. And so you, that, that person has to be conscious of that. Mm-hmm. And that's that's our teaching as a church. We don't baptize babies. We baptize people who have repented of their sins and placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I don't believe that baptism saves you. If you just read this verse, it looks like it does. I think when you look in the context of scripture, baptism is a symbol of a spiritual condition and a spiritual change that's occurred in your heart. So the process of salvation is repenting of your sins and placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That is the inward change that occurs. The outward expression of that is baptism. Now, here's what's sad. Many people and many churches are never baptized and it's a tragedy. Mm -hmm. It's the first step of obedience. To me, a, a Christian who's not baptized is like a couple who lives together and says that a marriage certificate means nothing. And what they're saying is, we don't feel like our love compels us to publicly say, we're together forever. And I think that's tragic. I think if you truly love someone, you should publicly say before your family, before your friends and before God, I'm with this person and this person only. And I think that's what baptism is. Baptism is saying, I wanna be with God forever. And I wanna tell everyone, Mm -hmm. I want everyone to see because what is baptism? It's a public admission of sin. Yeah, I need to be washed. I need to be cleaned. I need to be saved. I am following Jesus Christ. I'm gonna follow God. I'm gonna follow Jesus. And I'm gonna live for the spirit, right? Baptizing in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the spirit. And so that that's why I think we need to do this. And so, yeah, there are churches that teach, you know, a lot of churches, Orthodox, that's the biggest denomination mm-hmm. that teach that, uh, Catholics, uh, teach that and then that you affirm that when you're 12 years old, um, you know, when you become an adult, you go through, I think it's catechism. Mm-hmm. I'm not Catholic, forgive me, my yeah. Catholic brothers and sisters, but you go through catechism affirming, you know, what was stated about you as um, a child. And so I, I think the way that Sandals does it is is the best way. I, I'm not gonna slaughter other churches for the way that they do it and the way they interpret it. There is biblical evidence here for that reason. But I think if you look outside of just this verse, the normative pattern of, of, of faith is repent of your sins and believe, and that's enough. That's enough. It was enough for the thief on the cross. We're not saved by works. So in the Old Testament, right, you bring this offering, you do this, and that buys you, so, right. so to speak, <clears throat> forgiveness. And we need to reject anything that looks like that. We need to be very, very careful. I'm not more righteous because I was baptized. I may be more obedient, but I'm not righteous. My righteousness comes from Christ from Christ dying on the cross. He's done everything for me. 
And so um, I think the gospel is opposed to earning. Anything that says I do this and therefore I earn right. salvation from God, I think is dangerous. What's okay is effort. The gospel is not opposed to effort. And so if I think baptism saves me, I think that's dangerous. But if I think that I wanna show God that I love him and so I put forth effort and I get baptized, I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And I think, I man, I think people absolutely should baptize. And if you have not been baptized, when we get to the Ethiopian eunuch, I'm telling you, what are you waiting for? Do it as quickly as possible. Invite as many of your friends as possible because baptism needs to be a public testimony of your faith, your family, your friends, your neighbors, everybody that knew you when you were an idiot. <laughs> they need they need to be there to see that you're gonna be different. Yeah, and here at Sandals, we actually have a baptism coming up in a couple of weeks at the beginning of August. So if you have not been baptized and you are a follower of Jesus and want to do that, uh, check out sandalschurch.com slash baptism. You can get on the list, get some more information about that. We would love to celebrate that with you here at Sandals Church. Cool. So Peter wraps up that statement and he says, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I I think this seems like it's maybe the first time in the history of the church that receiving the Holy Spirit is now directly linked to becoming a Christian. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So from this point forward, Peter now says, we we received the Holy Spirit, I I guess this morning. And if you become a Christian now, you'll instantly receive the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and that's the process. The Holy Spirit will, the Holy Spirit will not deny anyone his presence if they've placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So, um, and, and so this is what's important. And so the, here, let's get back to this verse of being baptized. What's so important for these Jews? And this is, this, is, this is hard for us to grasp in America. But for example, when I was in East Africa, a, a, a lot, East Africa is, is largely Muslim. And so when we, you know, we, have a, we planted a church there about eight years ago, nine years ago now. And when I got to sit there and worship with these Christians, a lot of them would come to Bible study, they'd come to church, they'd study the scriptures, but they were really reluctant to be baptized. And this is why. Baptism was a public statement to their Muslim community that they had shifted their faith. Hmm. And so here's why I think Peter is so heavy on baptism here, is he's saying, you guys can't be private Christians. You guys, right? Because Jesus was crucified because of who he was. The disciples are gonna be persecuted because of their faith in Christ. And what he's saying is, you have to repent of your sins. You have to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And you have to do pub, do it publicly through baptism. Baptism is a public event saying, I am a follower of Jesus in the presence of people who've rejected Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so in, in Eastern Africa, on the East Coast, you could be killed after you're baptized. Nobody's gonna kill you if you're a private follower of Jesus, right? They don't know. Mm-hmm. But once you come out and you, and so, so for those Muslims in Eastern Africa to be publicly baptized in many cases was a death sentence. Mm-hmm. And so that's, we need to be careful that we don't then interpret this theologically because Peter is not preaching to us. He's preaching to them. We have to learn from the sermon he preached to them, but he's telling them, right? You can't, you cannot deny God publicly and have him accept you. You, you. you have to, right? The Bible says, if you deny him, he will deny you. You have to say, I'm a follower of you. So how do they do that? What does a public confession of sin and faith in Christ look like? How does that manifest itself physically? Baptism, mm-hmm. that's the answer. And, and so, for a lot of these people listening, it sounds like it'd be a really great way to differentiate themselves from the rest of Judaism, since they're all still in Jerusalem. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a line drawn in the sand. Jesus said, right, I'm gonna separate you know, husband and, and wife, father and son, mother and daughter, family, right? There's a, there's a dividing line right through the heart of Judaism. And you have to choose which side you're on and the way that you publicly declare your side is baptism. And it's important 
that you publicly declare your faith in Christ. You're publicly, you know, again, why are you dying to yourself? Because you're a sinner and, and you need to die. The, the, the baptism is a picture of being crucified with Christ and raised to walk a new and awesome life. And it's telling all your friends, right? Righteous people don't need to be baptized. I mean, Jesus Christ did that, but he didn't need it. He allowed, he allowed John to baptize him. Um, so I hope that answers the question. And just know there are people that disagree with me, LA International Church of Christ. You guys are, you grew up Church of Christ. Yeah. You know, there are denominations that teach you have to be Not baptized. that one you just described. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> that's a separate group. Um, but the Church of Christ, uh, Orthodox, um, uh, I think the Catholic Regular Church. Regular, like Christian church, if you see that. Yeah, that's one of yeah. And, and, and right, here's their verse. But again, you, you, it's important to step into the actual sermon that Peter's preaching. And hopefully what I just talked about has provided some clarity for that and not attaching spiritual meetings. And so that's why we have Jesus only churches and we have, you have to be baptized churches. Right. Go back to Matthew, look at the rest of scripture. What does it say? Should you be baptized? Absolutely. Will being baptized save you? No. Faith in Christ saves you. That's it. Um, at the end of Peter's sermon here, he's talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit. And he says, this promise to you is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. So I noticed that there's a footnote in our Bibles after the line, those far away, saying it could mean those in the future or the Gentiles even. Could he also be saying like those who are even geographically far away? Like when we talk about the 1040 window and all that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so what, what we have to go back. So, um, you know, like when you're in college, you have to learn to write, you know, your opening paragraph tells you about what you're going to write. So Luke yeah. has told us that, and and, and that's in Luke, or excuse me, in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So the gospel is going to go forth. And so what Peter is announcing is, look, the gospel is now being presented in Jerusalem, but it's going to go to Judea, it's going to go to Samaria, and it's going to the ends of the earth. Why? Because God is calling people from from all across the world to place their faith and trust in his son, Jesus Christ. And he is calling you and so they now have a choice to make as the gospel has gone forth in Jerusalem. It won't just stay in Jerusalem. It's going to go forth to every nation, every tribe, every tongue. They have to make a choice uh, and respond to this calling. So. And then, so at the end of that verse, he says, to all who have been called by God. And so when we talk about this calling, is he saying that that promise is just for those who have been called by God? Are there people who haven't been called by God? Yeah, and so and that's another theological um disagreement between Christians. And so the way I want to answer it here, and we'll get into that more and more is God is calling everyone to repentance. Okay, That call is universal. That call is global. There's a global call to repentance. Paul says in Romans one, that God allowed the Gentiles and the pagans to live in ignorance for a while, but no longer. He is calling everyone to faith and repentance in Christ Jesus. And that's why we need to preach this to every tribe, to every tongue, to every nation. What we know is we know that when we preach the gospel, that God has called some of those people, that the gospel won't be null and void. People from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every religion, some of those people will turn from their sins and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ because God is calling them to themselves. But they're not going to come to Christ unless we go and preach the gospel. And so um, we'll, we'll talk about that. But for now, God is calling the nations. God is calling the world to repentance. And that's the gospel that we preach. And the only way, as God is calling people to repentance is through faith in Jesus, Jesus Christ, because that's the only way that you can be saved. So I'll kind of punt on that for now. We'll get into it a little bit later. I think Peter himself even says that when he he writes one of the Bible, the books of the Bible later on, that God wants everybody to be saved, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Second Peter 3, 9. Boom. All right. So here we're, we're coming here at the, up at the very end of Acts chapter two, 
And there's this extended chunk in verses 42 through 47 that talk about how all the believers were together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. There's all kinds of cool stuff that's happening. This last section is a really great picture of what the church is supposed to look like. Yeah. And so I've heard people reference this verse about like selling the property, like being together every single day. They make it sound like unless we're like selling everything, basically becoming our own like Christian commune, we're not doing church right. Um, how should we realistically go about living out this verse? Yeah, so, and again, those people are building their entire theology of church based upon a few verses, and that's dangerous. That's how you become a cult. That's why, you know, again, I, we don't baptize in Jesus' name only. We don't believe that just being baptized saves you. And here, we don't believe that you need to turn into a commune cult to be a follower of Jesus. So what we need to look at, yeah, this was incredible, right? Mm -hmm. Things that are happening were incredible, but they didn't stay this way. They didn't stay there. Mm -hmm. I mean, sooner or later, if everybody sells everything they have, guess what everybody is? broke. Yeah, they're so, all I mean, somebody has to have a job. Somebody has to go to work. That's the reality. And so um, I, I would strongly disagree, you know, in terms of, of living out this way, because sooner or later you have problems with people working more than others. And, and Paul will write about that. Those who don't work shouldn't eat. And because it becomes a problem in the church, because you always have people that are willing to live off the efforts of others. Even Christians do that. Mm -hmm. uh, even Christians can be lazy. There's actual verse that says, never be lazy but serve the Lord enthusiastically. Why would Paul write that? Because Christians, some of them are lazy. Right. And so this is a picture of a very, very beautiful time in the church. And you think about, think about like your honeymoon. Like, well, you yeah, haven't had a honeymoon welcome. yet, but yeah, you're, you know, I mean, I'm willing to. it's awesome time, right? It was a great time. You're together. It's just, it's just a really, really beautiful time. You're enjoying each other. It's new community. It's just, it's just a fantastic time. This is the honeymoon of the church. It's mm -hmm. a, it's a beautiful mm -hmm. time. But what happens in marriage? You got to come home from the honeymoon, and you, and you got, you got to live life. Right. Your and wife eventually, wants a bite of your chocolate cake. Yeah. The church, <laughs> the church has to do the same thing. Now, having said that, there's still some things that we should be doing here. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Mm -hmm. You need to be learning. And this is what breaks my heart. It's great. We have all these thousands of people that listen to Debrief, but what about the thousands of people in our church who don't? <laughs> what are yeah. you doing? Mm -hmm. What are you doing? Because I guarantee you, you know, people always say, oh, I can't believe you read the Bible so much. It's because I know how much I need it. Hmm. I don't read the Bible because I'm really smart. I read the Bible because I'm a huge sinner. And every single day, it softens my heart. It speaks truth into my soul and it guides my life. And I know more about the Bible than most people in our church, but I know I need it every mm -hmm. single day. I need to be reminded every day, devote yourself to the apostles teaching. You know, and I'm not an apostle, but I am your pastor. Listen, listen to my time with God. Listen to, you know, weekly church attendance is the bare minimum. Start reading your Bible. We're only asking you to read one chapter a week. Read it one chapter a week. Listen to our conversations about it. Listen to the sermon, move together. And then they met together in each other's homes. You know, Christianity is not just about head knowledge. It's not a degree that we earn. It's a life that we live. And so what we need to do is we need to live it out in community because it's easy to understand concepts. You know, I had a relative who was a marriage counselor. He's married five times. Wow. <laughs> right? So he could tell other people what to do, but he couldn't do it himself. I wonder if he has each of his marriage licenses up on his wall, like uh, degrees. Yeah, well, I mean, many of you have been to a doctor where the doctor's obese and smokes chain smoker. Yeah. Okay? Just because you know something doesn't mean that you're living it out. The same thing is in the church. And so what community forces us to do is to live out these principles that we're learning um, to hold ourselves accountable. And, and God just doesn't want you to be a Christian in your marriage or a Christian in your dating life. He wants, to be a, wants you to be a Christian in community. And the purpose of community is we are truly following Jesus when we live out God's love to people we wouldn't normally like or nor hang out with. Mm -hmm. That's when you're truly Christian. You're not more like Jesus when you love your wife whom you claim to love 
right? <laughs> I mean, I guess you can be, but but it's got to go beyond that. Yeah. So community is loving people that you're not related to and that you normally wouldn't hang out with, but for the exception that Christ has called you to hang out with them, know them and love them. And those are the small groups, the community groups that are the best when it's a random group of people that have nothing in common but Jesus and are trying to love each other and encourage one another and teach one another in a way that they can all become more like Christ. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, really dysfunctional groups are groups that gather together because they have everything in common. You know, um, there are churches that pick like a hobby and they define themselves, you know, about like a biker church or yeah. a, you know, triathlon church or a, I've never heard of a triathlon church, but I don't want to just throw <laughs> bikers. Dream of one, though, I don't want to throw bikers on the, but no, I don't want to, th- I, I would not want to be with fellow triathletes all day long because they're super <laughs> anal and just self-focused. And that's, that's, I, I, you know, and I say that as a triathlete, um, but that's why, you know, um, just like, you know, if you're a recovering drug addict, don't be in a church with a bunch of recovering drug addicts. You need to be people, you need to be with people that don't struggle with addiction, who yeah. can speak into your life from a different perspective. Uh, if you're single, don't just hang out with singles. Hang out with married people. Look and see what married life is like. If you're a married person, don't just hang out with a bunch of married people and become all self-absorbed with marriage, but get to know single people. If you're old, don't just be with old, cruddy, you know, old people. <laughs> Be, be with, if you're old, we're really sorry. Yeah, we, we love, love you, you. And thank you that you're listening to the debrief, which means you're much younger than you think. That's um, true. You know, but hang out with younger people and figure out what they're struggling through and they're going with. And as soon as we isolate into groups that are just like us, we've left Jesus. Mm-hmm. But Jesus wants to be with people who are not like him. And that's who he constantly is bringing in. And so, you know, so they broke bread, they ate together, they cared about each other, they prayed for each other, Right. What happened? And God added to their numbers on a daily basis. And they all had a sense of awe. If you've lost the sense of awe, it's because you've made Christianity all about yourself. Hmm. I was having a conversation with this young guy in Huntington Beach yesterday. And he literally said this, he's criticizing the church. And he says, I can't find a church where I like the music and the teaching. And you know what he's saying? Church has to be all about my needs. Yep. And if it doesn't meet all my needs, then it's not God's church. Let me tell you something. Man, if you find a church that meets all your needs, be careful because it's not the first church of Christ. It's the first church of you. Hmm. And you got to be very, very careful. And you know, whenever people get irritated with sandals and it doesn't meet all my needs anymore, great. Now it's really your church because when it's meeting all of your needs, it's all about you. When it's about meeting the church's needs and, and God's family, then it's all about Christ. And so we got to be very, very careful because there's a time in the church when you need the church to meet your needs. But, the, but you can't stay there forever. Mm-hmm. There has to be a time where you graduate, you know, and um, you start to minister to others. I hear people say all the time, well, there's just nobody to disciple me there. Well, who disciples me? Mm-hmm. I disciple me. Because, right, I mean, there was a point in my time where I was discipled, but at some point, right, Jesus left. Hey guys, you're on your own. Yeah. <laughs> you're on your own. I'm going to heaven. I'm, I'm partying in heaven with God. You have to get to the place where you can self-disciple. I don't count on others to teach me or to lead me. My job now in the church for the rest of my life is not about me, it's about everybody else. And that's how Jesus lived, Mark 10, 45. The son of man did not come to be served, right? It's not about me, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. That's growing in Christ. And so be always be careful when you hear somebody that should be a mature Christian saying, I just don't get anything out of it or, Man, the goal of Sandals Church is to make it easy for new believers, not to feed fat old believers. That's that's the point, right? We want we want to see people be saved. Yeah. So. Wow. Okay. I so, know that was a soapbox. No, that was no, good, that was dude. I imagine there's a lot of people out there who are the kind of people that listen to the debrief and love it, who just feel like they got punched in the ears. Yeah, and, and people who are listening to debrief should get punched. 
You, you need to get punched in the gut, right? I mean, I want to encourage, I want to be funny. I'm somewhat entertaining on Sundays and, and Saturdays because there's people that have never come to church before. Mm-hmm. And, and what's my goal? To get them to come back. Totally. That's what we're doing the debrief to get you to go deeper. And so I'm challenging you on a different level than I would challenge people who just listen to the weekend services. So I love that. Okay, so Acts 3 has this really short and beautiful story. We got just a couple of questions from there. And uh, basically, Peter and John, they heal this crippled beggar, and then it's an opportunity to preach. In verses 3 through 4, it says, When the crippled beggar saw Peter and John about to enter into the temple, I think, he asked them for some money. And Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, Look at us. So this was the thing that stuck out to me most powerfully as I was reading Acts chapter 3, and the idea that Peter and John looked at this beggar intently. Uh, it just kind of struck me that caring about people like this is just really one of the most Christ-like things that they could do here. And I was just wondering, is that kind of love what laid the context for the miracle? Yeah, absolutely. I I, I love the way that you phrased the question, Justin. Um, it's just so cool. I think what we need to see here is that if we want to see God do amazing miracles in our life, we need to be looking for him to use us to do it in others. Mm -hmm. So much Mm -hmm. of our Christianity is so self-focused. So I want God to bless my marriage, my finances, my health, all of these issues, right? People are super inspired about prayer when they need a miracle. We need to be super inspired about prayer when others need a miracle. And so I think a true Christ follower is a noticer of needs. Yeah. A noticer of needs. Like people always say, oh, sandals need to have a homeless ministry. Okay, everyone raise your hand. You're all you're all Christians. Go ye therefore and you know, bless homeless people. Right. Take care of them, right? We don't need a ministry. We need you to notice people. And if the Holy Spirit you know, tells you to help somebody, help somebody. Do it. You don't need the church to do it. You are the church. You do it. And so that's what Peter's doing. You know, Peter didn't go back to the church and say, hey guys, we need to really pray about this cripple guy at the at the uh, thing. And we need to create a ministry and a committee. And, you know, yeah. he, he just said, look, man, he noticed him and he saw him. And, and I believe that's how you know when you come to church, man. You know, a lot of people don't like the meet and greet time. Mm-hmm. It's because you're not noticing people. And there's people there that are depressed, mm-hmm. discouraged, battling anxiety. There's people there that are, are, are literally diagnosed with a terminal illness. There are wives that got beat by their husbands the night before and they're there in church. There's a single gal that just got dumped. She's mm-hmm. sitting right next to you. There's a person who's you know never dated, not married, thinks that no one cares about him. Nobody sees him. That person's sitting right next to you and you're on your way to the temple and you don't notice anybody. You're there to do your church thing. And what Peter and John do is they stop and they notice somebody that no one else noticed. Mm-hmm. Now people knew him there, right? But they never truly helped him. And so Peter says, look, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have, I'll give you. And that's what we need to do as Christians is give people love, give people the love of Christ, notice them. If Jesus was one thing, he was a noticer, mm-hmm. right? Think about everybody's putting in all these huge offerings. Who does he notice? The woman who put in everything she had. Yeah, She puts in two pennies. Jesus says, no one has noticed her, but I did. I notice, and you need to be like her because she gave all she had and you gave out of your abundance. Jesus noticed that, right? He constantly notices people that nobody, Zacchaeus is in a tree all by himself. Hmm. Jesus says, I I see you, Zacchaeus. I see you, Uh, Hagar, abandoned by Abraham, thrown out by Sarah. What does she name God? The God who sees me. God is a noticer. He notices the unnoticeable. He notices the one that no one cares about. This is why the world needs to know about our Christian God because he is the champion of those who have no champion, right? He, he, is, he is the rescuer of those who need to be rescued. And so here, Peter and John speak, and here's what's so amazing. This, this, is, this is what changes the world, right? 
so the, we talked about the gift of tongues and and wow how that's amazing it's great so some guys spoke in some weird languages wow there's been a lot of weird things that have happened in the world nothing like this has ever happened mm-hmm. the holy spirit is now remember um jesus and i was actually wrong a couple of weeks in our debrief i said only jesus and i think i said this in the sermon only jesus was filled with the holy spirit actually john the baptist was filled with the holy spirit from birth right so i missed that so john and Jesus, even I get it wrong sometimes, sorry guys. John and Jesus are um, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now all believers in Christ are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so it's a beautiful thing. And so um, now we have the capability to see God do amazing things. I've prayed over a kid that was dead and seen him come back to life. Now, let me say this one time, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one time, in 45 years, I, get, I mean, I haven't been a Christian my whole life, but one time in my life, 45 years on earth, one time I've seen somebody come back from the dead like this. We need to understand this is not the rule. This is the exception. Mm-hmm. They're miracles for a reason. They're not called normals. Hey, God did a normal today. <laughs> That's why this story is in the Bible because it was an amazing thing, an amazing thing. And we need to understand that as Christians, the apostle Paul tells Timothy in his last book to him, drink a little wine for your stomach. Why? They had prayed for Timothy for healing and Timothy had to suffer. Sometimes Christians have to suffer. The apostle Paul talks about when he visits the church in Galatia that his eyeballs were gonna fall out. He probably had a horrible case of pink eye. Hmm. Horrible, he had a horrible eye infection, right? It's, pink eye is disgusting, it's poop eye, it's gross. That's what it is. It's the bacteria that comes from your rectum area that gets infected in your eyes, it's awful. And Stephanie's being grossed out, yep. but that's what it is. So he has to suffer through that. He says, he said, you would have gouged out your eyes and given me yours for me. Hmm. So they didn't. They had a prayer service. It didn't work. Why? Because sometimes we got to suffer because that's the curse of sin. That's the reality of judgment. We all are living under this curse. Read Romans 8. All of creation is under a curse and we are waiting for the day for our Messiah to return so that we can be freed from this. We're not free from the curse of death and suffering until Christ returns. Okay, so verse 12, um, you talked a lot about this in the sermon this last weekend, he said, Peter saw his opportunity and addressed the crowd. He said, people of Israel, he said, what is so surprising about this? So Kelly sent in a question, um, and she was talking about the fact that she is married to a non-believing husband. And she says, how can I know the difference between sharing the gospel with my non-believing husband, who's expressed not wanting anything to do with God in the church, or simply praying for him regularly? How can I discern where the line is between being too pushy and being faithful? So like, how can Kelly find out like, where's the opportunity? Yeah, there so her? there's actually, Kelly, thanks, great question. There's actually a whole chapter dedicated to you. So um, I would read 1 Corinthians 6, 7, and 8. Uh, and those that's chapters, three chapters, bro. That's three chapters. Yeah. So, yeah. Whole chunk of chapters. A couple of chapters. I believe it's chapter 7, though, that talks mm-hmm. about living with an unbelieving uh, husband or spouse. And what Paul says is that your strategy, Kelly, needs to be your behavior. You need to be a wife that glorifies God and your husband, when he talks about you, when he refers to you, needs to talk about how amazing you are and incredible you are. And, and I realize that puts a lot of pressure on you, but I know that you love your husband and you want him to be saved. The greatest witness that you can give your husband is your behavior and how you treat him. So what does a, what does a biblical wife look like, right? I mean, be submissive, be, be uh, a compliment to him, don't be critical of him. I certainly wouldn't nag him about church. Um, and so, you know, we'll get to submission when we, whenever we get to that. That doesn't mean like submit to bad things. You know, I mean, if it's, if it's not immoral or illegal, you know, and you can do it, do it and do it with a good attitude. That's what you need to do. But your husband, when he talks about you, should talk about how amazing you are as a wife and your, your behavior, your attitude, your personality should all glorify Christ. 
And whenever you have the opportunity, if you guys are having a, a moment of intimacy, you know, I mean, my wife and I, sometimes we just talk about lame things like laundry, you know, life. I mean, not all of our conversations are life-changing conversations. Every now and then we get into a deep conversation. I think whenever you have that opportunity and your husband is open to hearing your heart, when he's open and, you know, I'm a husband, I know that I'm not always open. I wish I was. I'm not always open to hearing my wife's heart. But when, the, when there's those moments and you can sense that he's open, I would say, you know, I would just love if you came to church with me. Maybe on Mother's Day, maybe a special day, your anniversary, let that be your gift. And if, you know, that ticks him off, then back off. But I'll tell you this, that one of the most important spiritual leaders in my life was Grandpa Jack. He had an amazing wife. I never met her. Um, they were married uh, for over 60 years, never met her. I met Jack after she died. Uh, he was in his mid seventies. And so Kelly, I just want to give you hope that she, um, when she was 65 years old, she fell and broke her hip and she could no longer, uh, she got really sick after that, had to be on oxygen tanks and just never really recovered. And she couldn't drive herself to church anymore. She had asked Jack to go to, to church her whole life. He wanted nothing to do with church. And he said, when she was sitting in a wheelchair in their living room, and she asked him with tears in her eyes, would you drive me to church? He said, the Holy Spirit spoke to him. He's not even a Christian. He didn't say the Holy Spirit. He said, God spoke to him. I know it's the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. God spoke to him and said, you jerk, take your wife to church. She's been so amazing to you your entire life. He took her to church one time. The pastor gave an invitation at the end of service, gave his life to Christ. Mm -hmm. She ultimately died and he served God for the remaining 15 years of his life, served as a deacon, served as a great example to me, loved on my family, loved on our church, served God faithfully. And so Kelly, I hope and pray that you get to see your husband come to Christ, but know this, your prayers and your faithfulness could even outlast you. And so ultimately, you know, Grandpa Jack is in heaven because of the faithful prayers of his amazing wife. And she was incredible. And so I just don't wanna, I wanna encourage you guys, don't give up, don't lose heart, don't lose hope, keep praying for people. Now, having said this, not everybody's married and this isn't everybody's situations. There are going to be moments when people are open to the gospel. You need to be praying, Holy Spirit, don't let me miss those moments. Don't let me miss those opportunities. Never get in an argument. An argument is not an opportunity to share the gospel. Arguments don't soften people's hearts to God. They actually close them to God. Don't argue with people. When people are open to listening, share. I do not argue with people. I am not interested in arguing. There's a Muslim guy at my gym that loves to follow me around and argue. And I just told him, dude, I don't want to talk to you anymore because he doesn't, he doesn't want to talk about Jesus. He wants to argue with me about why Muhammad is the true prophet. I, right? I, I mean, am I, am I one day going to repent of my sins and place my faith and trust in Muhammad? No, he's probably not until God's Holy Spirit moves, going to be ready to change. And I just told him, dude, I am not interested in arguing with you anymore. So stop, stop. And then now he's really nice to me. But so if I have an opportunity and he says, man, I'd really like to hear this. Absolutely, I'll talk to him. Uh, if he wants prayer, absolutely, I'll pray for him. I look for opportunities. I don't wanna waste my time. So everybody has the same hours in the day. We gotta use those wisely. So look for opportunities. Look when your friends are open to the gospel. Um, and that, that's when I, I would share it. When you talked to Kelly and you told her about just behavior as being one of those ways and you said, hey man, your husband needs to look at you and say, she's just awesome and I think it's because of this Jesus thing. Man, she wrote in a much longer letter than just that question. Yeah. And I have a feeling that she's going to hear that and think that's like that's never going to happen based mm -hmm. on some of her past sins uh -huh. and uh, just even in her marriage 
can you encourage her in that? Because I think she, I think she yeah, needs that. absolutely. I, I didn't read your nope. letter, Kelly, but I will after this. And so let me just say that you know the beauty of Christianity is we can be forgiven for our sins. And so I would just go to your husband and ask for forgiveness and, and repent and and just ask him to forgive you and just talk about how Jesus has changed your life. And so again, right? Talk about what Jesus has done in your life. And so ultimately that's what leads to all these people getting saved. It's what happened in the crippled guide's life. We're all, we may not be all physically crippled, but we're all emotionally and spiritually crippled. We all need healing from Christ. And so I would talk about that and just share how you need to be forgiven and you wanna be better and you're trying and, and God's grace is working through you and inspiring you. And again, oftentimes the way that we, we lead people to Christ is about talking about God's grace in our lives and our struggle in following God in our lives. We don't win a lot of converts by trying to convict other people of sin. I believe we win converts by, sh by sharing about our sin. And, and that's when I see just tons of people come to Christ at our churches. When I talk about my struggles in parenting, in marriage, um, in sexual purity, and all of those things. Um, you know, I think about Kelly, our, our um, sound guy, our producer. I think he came to church first when I talked about one of my struggles living sexual purity years ago. I think that was you. When I talked about literally, I was in a sexual relation with my girlfriend and I was I, I literally had to flee the house. Um, and for whatever reason, that, that drew you to our church. I think that's you, he's nodding. Um, that's incredible. And here he is now, he works for us years later. <laughs> but it wasn't me talking about how I'm so awesome. It was mm -hmm. me talking about my struggle that ultimately drew him to Christ. And because there's only one perfect Christian and his name is Jesus. Mm -hmm. So so um, was that enough? That was good. That was okay. Great. Yeah. Love um, you, Kelly. Thank you for writing in. Seriously. Uh, verse 12, Peter's response to everyone, they're freaking out about this miracle. And in verse 12, he says, why stare at us as though we made this man walk by our own power or godliness? And this was the other part of Acts chapter three that really just challenged me because I see myself a lot in Peter. He's foolhardy, he's prideful at times and all these other things. But all of a sudden in this first big moment where he's like, yep, I'm the rock of the church is what could happen here. He just immediately deflects all the attention back to Jesus. And I'm wondering how can we cultivate a heart of humility like that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we talk about, it's, it's so unfortunate that tongues get so much of the attention of the, the, the manifestation of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, or through 24, that the fruit of the Spirit, so the evidence of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Uh, what am I missing? Gentleness. Gentleness and self-control. I don't know if that's nine. Please don't count. It's close. <laughs> um, but that the evidence of the Holy Spirit, and so if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're not taking notes, stop your car, pull over and take this notes. The evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life is a change in your disposition. Did you get did you get that? Mm -hmm. The evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life is a change in your disposition. So our personalities- Somebody tweet that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, what, here's what happens is who we are at, in our personality, in our demeanor, in the way that we offer adjusts. There's an adjustment that takes place. So you have this arrogant, self-centered, prideful person. And think about James and John, right? Lord, do you want us to bring thunder down on these people and kill right. them? <laughs> yeah. Right, that's who they are. Yeah. So they're right there with them. Those are the three main characters. So the three most arrogant individuals before the coming of the Holy Spirit become the most humble and sacrificial. It's amazing um, what the Holy Spirit does in people's lives. So the, the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life is a change in disposition. There's something that happens. So the, the, the longer I walk with Christ, the more gentle I become, the more faithful I become, the more loving I become, the more kind I become, the more self-control you know, I exercise. It, it just my, my disposition changes. That is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. There's an adjustment that takes place. Um, you know, the greedy become generous. 
right? The faithless become faithful. There, there's just an adjustment that takes place. And so the, the prideful becomes humble and that's the evidence of the Holy Spirit. And what's so powerful is he says, don't look at me, look at Jesus. And that's the heart cry of the Holy Spirit. Don't look at me, look at Jesus. And that's what a Christian needs to say. Is don't look at me, look at Jesus. You know, when you guys, you're moved by my preaching or, or you're moved by the debrief, don't look at me, look at Jesus. You know, I am, I am a manifestation of the giftedness of God. It is God's gift working in and through me. It's not me. It's not me. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, you don't celebrate the scalpel. You thank the surgeon. I'm just the scalpel, right? I mean, that'd be odd. Thank you, scalpel, for cutting me. No, you thank the surgeon for the precise nature of the task that took place. The Holy Spirit is the surgeon that's cutting out the things in your life that need to go out. And here's the amazing thing, that's transplanting the things that need to be in your life. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I need this every day. Every day, the Holy Spirit is doing surgery on my life. Every single day. And the Holy Spirit should be doing surgery on your life. And so that's why we need to say, you know, Holy Spirit, fill me today again with your presence, with the reality, speak to me. The Holy Spirit speaks, the Holy Spirit's with us. The Holy Spirit is the person of God that's with us every single day. We talk about Jesus being with us and certainly uh, in a spiritual sense, his spirit is with us. But the reality is it's the Holy Spirit. That's the person of the Godhead that's with us on a daily basis. Um, Jesus physically is at the right hand of the Father. Mm-hmm. He is there. God's presence and God's power that is with us is manifested through the person of the Holy Spirit. This is the age of the Spirit, and the Spirit is moving in and through us. So, As Peter's wrapping up here, he's talking again to the Jews, and um, he says, Friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance, but God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. And as I was reading this, I'm just wondering, is Peter um, saying here that even things that we've done in ignorance, maybe before we've come to Christ, um, not knowing that those were wrong before, do those things need to be repented of? And how do we do that? Like, how do we go about repenting of things that we did in ignorance before? Yeah, absolutely. So when we come to Christ, man, you know, and this is why I think the vision of Sandals Church is so important. So, you know, years ago, I, t- I did a sermon on core sins. We need to not just re- repent of sin uh, generally, but specifically. Hmm. There's things that we need to go through and we need to talk about. So God, you know, forgive me of my pride. Forgive me of my anger. God, forgive me of my lust. God, forgive me of my, you know, we need to name it because there's power in naming things, right? There's power in identifying things. And so that's why Jesus Christ said, if any man in Luke 9, 23 would come after me, let him deny himself. The question, the lifelong question for the Christian is, what is in me that needs to die? Mm-hmm. What still in me needs to die? What, what in me do I need to help the Holy Spirit kill? And so um, what we need to do is we need to repent. And, and so ultimately, man, repentance isn't just of bad things we've done in ignorance. It's, it's also of our good things. Right. Like, so think about why you do the good things you do. So most of us do them for one of two reasons. We pridefully do good things because we say, well, I'm not that kind of person. So I stay married because I'm that. Well, we, you're not doing it out of, love, you're doing it out of pride. Or people stay faithful to their wife or husband because I don't want to get caught. I don't want to get divorced. So your motivation is fear. Mm -hmm. It's the consequence. And so ultimately the heart of God is that we would want to do the right thing because that's the desire of our heart, because that's the desire of God's heart. And that's ultimately what we want is a new heart that wants to do what is right. Not out of pride, not out of fear, but simply out of an agreement with God. Right? I mean, what do we say when, when someone says, we say, amen, 
it's it's true. That's I'm in agreement with that. That's mm-hmm. that's what we want, and so that's where we need to be moving. And so, you know, the reality is there are sins that we've committed in our lives that we're not aware of. The good news is that you know God's blood on the cross, Christ's blood on the cross, covers even the sins we're unaware of. Right? It's it's a complete offering. It's 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 done. It's finished. But we may still need to work through that. And so sometimes, not only do you need to confess that to God, but you may need to talk with a fellow Christian about and say, hey, you know, I've never talked to anybody about this, but I need to confess this. And I've worked through that. Sometimes it's a counselor, Mm -hmm. sometimes it's a pastor, sometimes it's a friend. And that's been very helpful for me to be released from the shackles of past sins. Um, You know, one of my past sins that I was completely unaware of was just my personality. You know, my personality just offended people, drove people away. you know, my, my Gregorius, you know, just loud personality, just, just, just overwhelmed people. And mm. I've learned that I've had to say, hey man, I'm sorry that I was all about myself. And I don't know that I would have ever seen that at some point in my life as sin. I was just, right, I was just being me, just being loud, just being Mr. Funny Guy. Um, but um, that was intimidating, hurtful, you know, and you know, my joking, my mm-hmm. bantering hurt people's feelings. I wasn't aware right. of that. And I had to come back and say, you know, um, literally when I went to my high school reunion, I only went to my 10 year, that was humbling enough. I, I felt like it was just the apology line. Like I just had to, I'm so sorry. Cause I, at the time I had no idea, but I was hurting people and uh, my mouth was used for ill far more than it was for good uh, because it hadn't been, you know, dedicated to Christ. And so that, that's what I would say hmm. is that these guys acted in ignorance. They, they knew what they were doing. I, I have, you know, they knew that killing this guy I mean, right, they had to know something there, but they didn't know the full scope of what was going on. Yeah. And so now they had the opportunity to repent of their sins. And, and again, to take aside, these are Jews. These are Jews who partook in the crucifixion of Jesus. So this is, you know, this is a one-time sermon here to individuals who could have been standing at the foot of the cross, you know, saying, you saved others, save yourself. Yeah. They're now have the opportunity to save themselves mm-hmm. by repenting of their sins and not cru- no longer crucifying Christ, but crucifying themselves, following Christ in crucifixion. So, Okay, so here's our last question, and it comes from the last verse in uh, chapter 3. And uh, Peter says, God sent Jesus to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful ways. So I'm just wondering, how do we get to the place where we can accept God's discipline as a blessing, like Peter describes it? Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, suffering is both an awful thing and a beautiful thing. Um, the Apostle Paul says that we experience the joy of suffering with Jesus. Like we go through hard times so that we can become more like Christ. So what is the greatest blessing that God can give us? You know, Job says that when I come, when I after I go through this, I will come forth as gold. So that's Job. He doesn't even know Christ, but he is saying by faith that after God takes me through this, for whatever reason, I know that the ultimate outcome is for my good. And so no matter what we're going through, no matter what's happening in our life, no matter how painful it is, ultimately the blessing of that is knowing that God will use it. So I don't always agree that God is causing everything in our life. So Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What the verse says is God causes all things to work for good. I don't necessarily believe that God is a micromanager, mm-hmm. you know, uh, operating, you know, everything, in my life that's happening. I think that he's using everything in my life for good because I love him and I'm called according to his purpose. And so, you know, the horrendous nature of Tammy and I's marriage, what, what I thought was awful. And I remember saying, God, how can you do this? I remember saying that. 
Well, he did it because he loves me and he cares for Tammy and I, and he wanted to bring us forth as gold. And we are better people and we had a, a better marriage because we went through this awful time. Same thing when I went through my depression and my anxiety. I, I mean, it was the first time, um, I, I never thought I would like consider suicide. It was the first time in my life in my mid thirties as a pastor where I thought I can see, I didn't think about suicide, but I, I for the first time in my life, I thought I can see how people mm-hmm. consider that because I, can't, I couldn't imagine living depressed, being depressed like this forever. Well, God used that to make me ultimately dependent upon him. And God used my anxiety, God used my depression. All of those things that I thought were torture ultimately made me a better person, a better preacher. I have more compassion for people who struggle in that way. I think I'm more sensitive, I'm more Christ-like. What was awful, like hell, right? Been through hell so that I could experience heaven. And that's what I think it is, is that God's never gonna waste an experience and all these terrible things that, that have happened in your life, God is going to use for his glory. And again, you know, Proverbs 3, 5, and 8, you know, trust not in your own understanding, lean not on your understanding, but in all your ways, trust the Lord and acknowledge him. That's wisdom. God has a plan. I don't know what it is. It doesn't always make sense. And, you know, the, the reality is we live in an evil world and bad things happen. Yeah. So was that helpful? I don't know. Absolutely. So there's a bunch of good chapters and a bunch of great questions. Seriously, I loved getting all these questions. And part of it is because we uh, did Cold Gold Volume 1, but we had a whole bunch of extra new questions. So if you listen to the show, man, please, we live off your questions, man. They're mm-hmm. so uh, not just helpful, but encouraging uh, for everybody on the show. So really great stuff there. If you want to share these episodes or write in your questions or anything like that, find us over on Facebook at facebook.com slash the debrief podcast. And uh, we would love to uh, have you send in those five-star reviews in the iTunes store. Super helpful as well. It's been a good one. You feeling good, Pastor Matt? Yeah. And I just want to say, you know, continue to share this with your friends. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's people that need to, you know, there's a lot of people that are never going to read the Bible, but they can listen and grow that way. So, you know, I'm a person who learns a lot by listening. And so I I wish that I would have had this to listen to. Um, when I was younger, it would have been very helpful for me. Speaking of learning by listening, it's time for you, <laughs> Pastor Matt, to listen to an inspirational quote from Stephanie Keene and learn some great stuff. To clarify, this is an inspirational quote that Stephanie Keene found on the internet. So. All right, fair enough. Um, don't be afraid to go your own way. Thoughts? Y- yeah, I, I, part of me likes it and part of me hates it. So mm-hmm. because I, I think the world uses that as an excuse to be sinful. Um, you know, I think as Christians... Um, I think it's acceptable to, to go the way that Christ has called you, you know, with, with your personality and your specific shape. Um, but I don't think it's, it's an, it's a good thing to just do your own thing. So I don't think being obstinate, you know, just, just because you want to, just because you want to be different is not a good thing. I don't know that that's right. If everybody's doing the right thing and you just want to be different, right. That's (laughs) sin. So, well, there you go. Yeah. So do the right thing, guys. Share the debrief podcast with all your friends. How about do the God thing? Ooh. Yeah, what yeah. did God say? Sorry, I just Jesus to you.